The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about homeland security and cybersecurity, and we have a fabulous guest who's coming to us from Washington, D.C. Let me tell you about him. Paul Tiao is a partner with Hunton and Williams LLP, and if you remember, we've had Lisa Soto, who is one of his partners from the New York City office on our show as well, and that firm does great work in privacy and security and cybersecurity. So let me tell you a little bit more about him. He's in the Washington, D.C. office, and his practice focuses on cybersecurity, homeland security, privacy, white-collar criminal defense, internal investigations litigation, and regulatory matters and legislation. Paul has extensive experience working on cyber intrusions, data breaches, intellectual property violations, criminal cases, electronic surveillance, and so much more. And he advises clients on investigations, litigation, and public policy issues. And he is really wonderful. He's also an adjunct professor of cybersecurity law and policy at George Washington University and an instructor at the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I could talk lots and lots more about him, but actually you can learn about him at Hunton, H-U-N-T-O-N dot com. And also at our website where we have his picture and his bio and and um, the URL for his bio and for the privacy blog, which that firm writes for. And that's called Hunton Privacy Blog dot com. So we're so thrilled to have you join us, Paul. Thanks so much for, for joining the show. Oh, Mari, it's my pleasure. Well, Paul, this is, there's been so much in the news about Snowden and everything else and, and NSA spying and, oh, my goodness, it's been crazy. Why don't you tell us about, first of all, um, what is the NSA PRISM program? So the NSA PRISM program is a program that was disclosed by Edward Snowden to the Guardian newspaper in England, and it's a top-secret program. That concerns uh, NSA's uh, a service of court orders on nine internet-based communications providers, a lot of the big ones that we all know about. Uh, and it's a court order that was issued pursuant to something called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendments. Uh, the FISA law originally was passed in 1978, and then it was amended uh, a number of times, uh, including in 2008. And the FISA Amendments Act is the law that the NSA used 
to obtain these court orders. They compelled these companies to uh, assist them. Uh, and in particular, what that means is the companies are providing to the NSA email, chat, voice, video, photographs, file transfers, and other online communications content relating to specific persons who the U.S. government believes to be terrorists or foreign intelligence threats and who they believe to be non-U.S. persons overseas. So the focus here is on foreign communications, um, some of which originate overseas and also terminate overseas but happen to go through the U.S. through a provider here, or some uh, which involve U.S. persons on one end of the communications and an overseas person on the other. Um, But it's really about content, uh, not collection of phone records. Right. So is it not really the case that it was very broad, like the uh, total information awareness that was, uh, you know, the subject of Congress uh, several years ago? Is it is it really focused on specific people that there is reason to believe that there might be terrorism? Is that really what's happening? It is. It's a targeted program that focuses only on individuals that the government believes to be engaged in terrorist or foreign intelligence threats. It's not what some would call a bulk collection program. It's really specifically targeted to uh, actors that they're concerned with. Let's talk about the FISA court, because uh, I think my audience doesn't really know about how that the, the FISA orders come about and about the FISA court. Could you just give us a little bit of information about that? Sure. Um, the FISA court is a court comprised of 11 federal district court judges from different parts of the United States, I think at least three of which are from the, uh, the, the immediate D.C. metropolitan area. And they were this court was created pursuant to FISA, which was originally passed in 1978. And it's uh, what some would call a secret court, because it's a little bit different from regular courts. There's only one entity that usually appears before the court, and that's the government. And the court's job is to review the government's applications for the authority to conduct searches, to conduct electronic surveillance, to obtain information Uh, from private companies typically uh, that relate to uh, individuals and groups that the government believes to be terrorist or foreign intelligence threats. And how many times in all the years, um, I don't know if you know the exact number, but most of the time when when the, um, who is it that brings it, the Secret Service, or who would bring it to them? Would it be um, the Attorney General's office? Who, Who would bring it to that court? It's the Department of Justice that okay. appears before the FISA court, and in particular, the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. And how often is that rejected? Very, Not very often, right? I think that what happens is that the National Security Division will present an application to the court, um, and then there's, uh, I think, a back and forth uh, communications. There's briefings, there's oral argument. There's discussions about what the National Security Division is seeking. The court, I think, often asks a lot of questions to really evaluate the appropriateness of the government's request. And I think it's not at all unusual for the court to require the government to make modifications to its, uh, to its orders or to its, to its requests so that the orders uh, comply with the law and that they're respectful of the Fourth Amendment. I think that historically the numbers indicate that in the end, the court has rejected very few of the government's applications. Right. But I think that that doesn't reflect the extent to which the court has actually required the government to modify its requests 
uh, in order to comply with the law and and the Constitution. But the great news is that for the FISA court, there is there is oversight to make sure that we have this check and balances before these orders are issued. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the FISA order that was served on Verizon Business Network. Verizon Business Network. Sure. So this is another document that was uh, it's a top secret document that was disclosed by Mr. Snowden, <laughs> um, and he uh, he disclosed uh, this to. Um, Actually, I think I may have misspoken earlier. I think that the disclosure about the prison program was to the Washington Post. The disclosure of the Verizon order was uh, ultimately um, published by the Guardian newspaper in England. And that's a top-secret order. It's to an entity called Verizon Business Network Services, and it was done pursuant to the Patriot Act, which is a little bit different from the FISA Amendment Act. And what it does is it focuses not on the content of communications, which is what the PRISM program is all about. It really focuses on phone records, uh, what they call metadata or non-content information, and specifically phone numbers of persons making calls, phone numbers of persons receiving calls, and the date, time, and duration of those calls. And so um, this program was a little bit different, or this order is different from the PRISM program in that regard, and it's also different in the sense that it, uh, it authorizes NSA to collect from this entity, uh, those phone records from all of the customers of that entity. But the way that it works, according to the NSA, is that even though the NSA is creating this big database, it doesn't actually search that database unless it has a phone number that it is concerned about, that is associated with an individual that it believes to be engaged in either terrorist or foreign intelligence activities. Then when it has it, uh, it will then search the database to figure out what numbers have been calling or what numbers that number has called to figure out who that person that uses that number may be associating with. And this is, this is an important way that the government is able to figure out what individuals may be engaged in conspiracies to uh, attack uh, U.S. persons or U.S. facilities, businesses, companies, institutions, things like that. So when we, you know, it kind of gets a little scary when we think of all this information that is out there that can be collected and, and, you know, I'm glad that there's oversight. But how do these programs really impact us as Americans? I think that there's really two ways to think about it. One is from a national security standpoint, and then the other is from a privacy standpoint. And there's significant impacts in both areas. So um, I'll start with the national security piece. Um, So the government, as a result of the disclosures, has actually come forward and identified a number of bombing plots that have been thwarted as a result of the information that they collected pursuant to the NSA PRISM program. So um, they came out, and I think that they provided most of the information, uh, since it's classified, to uh, members of Congress. But even to the public, they indicated that they thwarted at least 50 terrorist attacks since uh, September 11, 2001, um, including bombing plots targeting the New York Stock Exchange, the New York City subway system, um, and, and other plots. Uh, so, And I could go into detail there if you like, but um, that's the national security side of things. And so the government believes that these are very important programs that enable it to stop these, these acts. From a privacy standpoint, I think that the program's Uh, reflect an effort to balance national security and privacy. But what that means, though, in this instance, is that 
the price of uh, being able, of, of sort of the government being able to have the information that it needs to stop these bombing plots is that people's information is disclosed to the government pursuant to these court orders. And right. so uh, if you look at the Verizon order, then uh, what the NSA has said that it has collected a lot of these phone records, but since 2012, you know, during 2012, for instance, it actually searched about you know, fewer than 300 phone records in that database. And so uh, some 300 people or so or fewer than that were actually impacted directly in terms of the NSA searching their records. But, you know, some folks may not be real comfortable with the fact that the NSA has their records to begin with, even if it hasn't been searched. And then on the PRISM side, you know, your privacy is is affected there as well, because if you happen to be communicating with somebody who happens to be of concern to the NSA, then those emails or chats or, uh, you know, uh, text messages, those could be collected. And again, that means that somebody else is looking at your email, and that has privacy implications as well. Right, right. And, you know, I I get a little bit worried because... um, I, you know, whenever information is collected and you, you wonder who has access, like, you know, I love the fact that they're thwarting all these terrible situations that could have been terrorist bombings and at the Wall Street or whatever. I think it's great. I, I do worry about who has access. And I think even the question that that Snowden had access is an issue. I remember years ago, you'll love this story is that, um, I got audited when my ex-spouse was dating and then subsequently married an IRS agent. She had access to push the button to get me audited three years in a row. And of course, I figured it out when I had no change the first year and no change the second year. But when the third year happened, I asked for a Freedom of Information Act request, et cetera, et cetera. So for somebody who has experienced this kind of an issue, and at the time that this happened to me was when um, Congressman John Glenn at the time had actually called for an investigation into the IRS for them doing just this kind of a thing. And so NSA, you know, who at the NSA has access and what can they do with it? And that's, that's maybe me being a little paranoid after what happened to me. But I do worry about who has access and do they have reason to know and what can they do with it? So, you know, again, it's like oversight that I worry about. So, <laughs> you know, I think you're, I, Mari, I think you're not alone. I think that there's others in this country that are concerned about the possibility that, you know, a rogue employee at the NSA could abuse his or her authority. Right. And or that, uh, you know, and use the data to search for information about, um, you know, individuals that, that, that is inappropriate and that falls outside of the scope of what they're authorized to do under the law. And the NSA is telling us that that only 22 individuals actually had the authority to do searches of that uh, of that database of metadata phone records. Um, but that, you know, it's, it, we don't know that much about what they're, sort of um, auditing or oversight mechanisms are to ensure that that only those 22 have that authority or or that they're exercising that authority appropriately. And so I think that this process that we're going through right now, this big national debate about this, will shed some light on the extent to which the government can really ensure that that authority is being exercised appropriately and being limited. And that, as you said, you know, that the, the appropriate oversight mechanisms are in place. Yes, yes. When we talk about all this debate that's going on, how does that really affect uh, cybersecurity legislation, and, and how's that? 
How's that going in D.C.? I think that it is uh, impacting cybersecurity legislation in a couple of ways. Um, You know, a lot of the focus in this debate here for the last six months in particular is on how it is that the Congress and the Obama administration or the executive branch in general can facilitate the sharing of information about cybersecurity threats uh, between the U.S. government and the private sector. Because the the concern in the cybersecurity arena uh, is that we're all siloed, if you will. We're all working in our own little spaces, and we have information about the threats and the malware and the social engineering phishing schemes that are hitting us, but we're not sharing that with others. Um, whether we're one part of the industry, uh, you know, the private sector not sharing with another part of the private sector, or we're one part of the government not sharing with the private sector or vice versa. And the view is that if we all had more information about what these threats are, then we could all improve our antivirus programs and our firewalls and our ways to sort of stop, sort of identify and stop cyber threats from getting in. And, you know, that sort of information is not really about emails and chats for the most part. Um, it's about sort of pretty technical information. But I think that that distinction is getting lost. And so, um, you know, if the, if the view before uh, this, before Mr. Snowden's disclosures, was that the government, one, needs to be sharing information more with the private sector, and that, two, the private sector needs to be able to share more information with the government if it wants, that is, being ch- that is changing. And so, um, you know, on those two issues, one, I don't think that Snowden's disclosures are affecting much about what the government's doing to try and share information with the private sector. So that's happening regardless, and the, and the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI are doing a lot to try and do that. I think that when it comes to trying to help companies be able to share information with the government about the cyber threats that they're seeing, I think that in that area, the Snowden, uh, Snowden disclosures are having a very significant impact. Yeah, because I, um, the people are afraid to maybe deal with those companies and they don't know what else is going on. So what when when the there's a FISA order, okay, um, what options do the, those companies have? I mean, can they say, no, we're not going to give it to you? I mean, basically, you know, they're pretty much um, ordered by the court to comply, right? So, so what, are they, what are their options? You know, when a company is served with an order, there's a couple things that they can do. One, uh, they know that it's an order from the FISA court. Um, and uh, under, you know, and, whether, and we can even talk about this question more broadly than just FISA, whether you're talking about the Patriot Act, uh, FISA, the FISA Amendment Act. Most of these laws um, allow these companies to, that have received an order to try to challenge that order. So um, they may be able to petition the FISA court to modify or to set aside that order, uh, challenging the legality of the order. And some companies actually have tried to do that in the past. Um, two, they might try to they might um, challenge the non-disclosure provisions of an order. Most of these orders have what they call gag provisions that prohibit the company from disclosing the fact of the request for electronic surveillance or for information. And that's to protect the national security program or the operation that may be in place um, so that the government can act in a way that enables it to stop a serious plot. Right, right. Um, And so but some companies have actually challenged those non-disclosures, at least under certain laws. Uh, And in particular, there's a challenge that's currently pending in the Ninth Circuit where you uh, work. 
yeah. um, relating to national security letters. And so that is a case that is before the, uh, the Court of Appeals there. And then in addition to the legal challenges, uh, companies can try to persuade the government to narrow um, the scope of the order. Just, um, or they can also, and sometimes they actually have to raise uh, technical challenges because sometimes they may not have the ability to comply with the order, and they raise technical issues that, uh, with the government to see uh, that may actually either prevent the company from complying or producing the communications, or they might work with the government to try and develop a solution that enables them to comply. But there's a lot of different issues that come up, and, um, you know, with the changing nature of the laws and the changing nature of technology, there's uh, a number of things that companies can do to either address privacy concerns or to push back in ways that um, defend and to protect the company's interests. We are speaking this morning with Paul Tiao, who is a partner, a law partner with Hunton and Williams in Washington, D.C., and his practice focuses on cybersecurity and homeland security, privacy, all these fascinating issues. Paul, let me ask you something. You know, you were talking a few minutes ago about the um, the national security letters. Now, that's different than a FISA order. So can you kind of clarify the difference in that? Yes, a national security letter is something that comes from a, a, a federal agency. Um, it's not an order or a directive issued by the court. And so in that regard, it's different. It's something that was part of the Patriot Act, I believe. Right. And so that one doesn't necessarily, those national security letters might be like a company might receive a national security letter, and what might that say to them? It might ask them to produce certain information that's all, that the agency is authorized to request pursuant to uh, pursuant to the, the law. Right, and but those are not that that doesn't necessarily have the oversight of the FISA court, correct? I think that that's right, and, and I think that um, but there are oversight mechanisms involved uh, uh, where Congress can weigh in. Now, is that what the issue is in the Ninth Circuit? Help, help me know what that case is, what's going on here in California. Yeah, I think that that's the challenge. What was going on in that case is that uh, a company received a national, a national security letter, and they challenged the nondisclosure provision, uh, making the argument that uh, the nondisclosure requirements are too broad and therefore a violation of the, the First Amendment. And so that challenge is um, still... Uh, pending in the Ninth Circuit, and we'll see where that goes. So what about, um, let me ask you, so I forgot, (laughs) this stuff is, it's it's exciting, and it's um, very intriguing, but also it's it's a little worrisome, too. So um, tell tell us where things stand on the executive order, and tell us what's happening with that, and what that means to us as Americans. So, um, so, Going back to our conversation about cybersecurity, mm-hmm. um, I think that in light of the fact that we're less likely to see uh, meaningful legislation from Congress on cybersecurity uh, in, in relation to information sharing, I think that the, one of the most important things that's happening in Washington with respect to uh, that issue is the executive order that the president issued in February of this year. And so um, when the the legislation in the Senate in the last Congress in 2012 failed in the summer. The administration began working on an executive order 
to improve critical infrastructure cybersecurity. And in February of this year, the uh, the president signed, issued and signed signed and issued that executive order. And it amounts to a very aggressive effort by the White House, the Department of Homeland Security, and other agencies to try to address uh, gaps in cybersecurity uh, inside and outside of the government. And it involves a serious effort to engage um, all parts of the government, state and local and tribal entities, critical infrastructure owners, industry groups, academia, and um, a lot of folks are working on different aspects of the executive order. And that that's the thing that scares me the most. I keep thinking about, you know, if we were to get into a a war, it would be a, you know, it could easily be a cyber war. And that cyber war is far more dangerous if they cut off our water, they cut off our electricity, all the things that make us, you know, a, you know, a civilized country. I mean, that, that's, I think, the most worrisome issue than, than anything. Is, isn't that what they're worried about, too? It is. I think that one of the great concerns is that uh, a cyber attack has the ability to take out really key parts of what enables us to have a civil society. Our electricity, our water, our transportation systems. You can have, if you have, the concern is that a significant cyber attack could turn our society into chaos pretty quickly. Yeah. And so that's why it is that they're focusing on critical infrastructure to protect against that possibility. But you're absolutely right. The FBI director, the NSA director, the um, Secretary of Defense, the president, they've all said that cybersecurity is, is fast becoming one of our top national security concerns. And that's why it is that there were 50 bills or more in, introduced in Congress in the last couple of Congresses. And that's why it is that the president has issued multiple executive orders and presidential directives related to cybersecurity. It's really become a major focus of our policymakers and of industry. I represent a lot of companies in this area, and they're very concerned about it, and they're fast doing whatever they can to try to shore up their network defenses. Right. And the bad guys are so adept. I mean, they're really incredible techies, aren't they? I mean, are we putting out and are we helping to educate at the highest level in all of these agencies? I mean, when I think about, for example, law enforcement in Orange County, I'm a sheriff reserve here in Orange County, Mm. and and I've been one for since 2000, and I know that they don't have the resources to be as techy on a lot of the kinds of things that that I worry about technologically, and and, uh, I was on the high-tech crime uh, organization that supported the sheriff's department, and um, the sheriff's department just didn't have it, and I'm thinking... Does the FBI, the Secret Service, NSA, do they have the kind of resources and have the kind of talent to really deal with this? In this time when we're facing a lot of budgetary constraints and agencies are cutting their budgets, the one area that is getting increased funding is cybersecurity. And that is true almost across the board within different agencies in the federal government. And so um, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the National Security Agency, the Department of Defense, they're all significantly ramping up their, their training, their um, technical capability, they're hiring computer scientists, they're expanding their programs, and uh, you know, they're, they're doing everything they, can, everything they can to try and catch up because everyone feels like we're behind the bad guys. And uh, we need to do a lot to make sure that we've got the resources and the programs in place to stop them. Right. I, I think that at the state level, it's, it's a real challenge. I and mean, it's a challenge at the federal level 
it's an even greater challenge at the state level. Some agencies have the ability and the technical know-how and the programs to address this. I think many do not, but I think that that is changing as people have become more aware of the nature of the problem and the threat. Yeah. Well, we are just about out of time, and I just want to thank you so much. So why don't you give your website and the blog and then where we can find out more information about maybe what we can all do to help this situation. So uh, we have a blog at www.huntonprivacyblog.com, and on that blog we regularly provide updates about the latest and the scariest in cybersecurity (laughs) 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 and the latest and the greatest in in data privacy. So I encourage folks to go there to to get a sense of some of the work that we're doing. Um, So... uh, yeah, But thank you very much for the opportunity to appear on your show. It's really oh, been a pleasure. Oh, great. Paul, you're terrific. And, you know, just, just hearing a little laugh at the end kind of made me happier because it was a little scary. But <laughs> we, we will have you back again. And thank you for all the great work and, and all the good uh, advice you're giving to companies to protect our society as well as privacy. So we will talk to you again soon. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org in the night. On the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about what you're concerned about with privacy and cybersecurity in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.